HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Castor and Pollux, maker of America's number one organic pet food, Organics. Look for their newest line, Pristine, the only complete line of pet food made with responsibly sourced ingredients. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org slash pets. Good morning, Heritage Radio listeners. Just a quick note before we start the show. What are you doing on December 4th? I know exactly what you're doing. You're coming to our Winter in the Garden fundraiser. We're holding it this year for the first time ever. It's going to be a live tasting event, walk around with a silent auction, and it's at Brooklyn Botanic Garden. It's going to be a beautiful event. I'm going to be there cooking along with a lot of our friends of the station. We're going to have El Atoradero there. Uh, Zara is bringing back her beloved beloved Brucey, and we're going to have Sylvia come down from Woodstock and lots of amazing ciders and cocktails. There's going to be tons of food, tons of drinks. You should definitely come and support the network. You can get tickets by going to heritageradionetwork.org forward slash holiday to purchase your tickets. Come join us on December 4th for that awesome event. And now let's get into the show. My guest today is Ariel Arce. She grew up in Hell's Kitchen. She was at one time in her life both a professional actor and also she's trained at the highest level of USA Gymnastics in the Junior Olympics program. Uh, She's worked in Chicago for Grant Ackett's and Nick Konis at The Office. She did a long stint at Pops, the oldest family-operated champagne bar in America. Then she came back to New York and she worked as a beverage and service director for a couple restaurants dealing most often with champagne. She's opened Ayers Champagne Parlor, which is a living room style uh, restaurant bar dedicated to champagne and sparkling wines. And then below it, uh, on the downstairs level, she has another spot called Tokyo Radio Bar, which is sort of her love letter to vinyl, sake, and Japan. Uh, We're going to be talking about opening two locations with separate identities and how it can be tricky when they're even right next door or even above one another. We're going to be talking about growing up in New York, learning the tricks of the champagne trade in Chicago, and of course, we're going to be talking about champagne, high, low, how to drink it, what Ariel suggests. Ariel, welcome to the program. What's up? Okay, I want to start off with your childhood in (laughs) Hell's Kitchen. Both of your parents were... uh, 
photographers, yeah. one food, one fashion. Tell me about growing up in that kind of creative world and also being a young kid in Hell's Kitchen, uh, you know, before maybe it was cool to be in Hell's Kitchen. Oh, totally. I mean, the gentrification of Hell's Kitchen is not where I grew up. Um, yeah, there is a lot of crackheads and there is a lot of gangs. And I definitely was not allowed to walk outside on the street by myself uh, until like the ripe age of 16 or 17. Um, but yeah, my parents, my parents really fostered a beautiful, warm, welcoming, uh, creative home. Um, and I kind of never really realized I was in a part of New York City that like people wouldn't even dare step foot inside. Was there a studio in your apartment? Or? Yeah, growing up, my parents had their business in kind of almost their bedroom. Um, we had what we call the loft um, still to this day on 38th between 8th and 9th. Um, and there was two bedrooms and then there is half of the apartment was basically just a photo studio. And then when I got a little bit older, my parents bought a place across the street and had like a actual studio there and created an actual bedroom for themselves. Any cool memories of you kind of like stumbling out as a 10-year-old or a 12-year-old in to get a bowl of cereal and being like, wow, there's a photo shoot going on in my living room. You oh, know? yeah. I mean, all the time. I mean, I was my dad's photo assistant for, you know, the later half of my teens. Um, but my parents were, I mean, always entertaining. There was always people in the house. Uh, my dad did, like, the original, um, like, Haagen-Dazs kind of dove ice cream shoots. And at times we would have, like, seven industrial size freezers and refrigerators in the house and like I was the cool kid because I would bring like literally gallon tubs of ice cream to school so um yeah I mean I was always in the thick of it I was always um like on if you would say you know and I was also like always at the top of a ladder just like pop in the fuse boxes um, which is, you know, part of my gym gymnastical past, which you acknowledge. <laughs> Thank you so much. Do you have a specific champagne memory of like being at a cool, I don't know, post photo shoot party or even like around the holidays at your house where your parents into champagne when no, you're growing up? Not at all. They were like incredible entertainers though. And my parents like really first started to learn about wine by joining the newcomers club when we moved to Connecticut for three years. And we were the only Jews who were in this really lovely white waspy town of Weston, Connecticut. Um, and my parents like learned about Ravenswood Merlot and like Zinfandel. And I just thought that was so cool. And they would always, you know, taste me on everything from a really, really young age. Um, I think probably my first glass of wine was probably at like an age of five or six. So like it was never something that was taboo. It was never something that like was really considered to be, um, you know, it was always for educational purposes. Um, so my champagne love really didn't stem specifically from my parents, um, but they did, like, really encourage celebration. They both didn't come from, like, really um, affluent backgrounds. My dad was the oldest of seven from a farm in Louisiana, and my mom was the oldest of four from a family in Queens. And, like, both of their parents were, like, hard-working families. So when they met each other and kind of 
fell in love with this idea that they could create their own futures. Um, they only had one child and they totally spoiled her rotten and like, you know, it indulged in like what celebration could be. Tell me a little bit about this child acting career that you had. Uh, how did you get involved in that? And then it did lead you to the LaGuardia School of Performing Arts, right? Which yeah. is a super famous school, which yeah, the, fame uh, school. the fame school yes. that has a lot of uh, not only a lot of wonderful history, but a lot of amazing graduates that mm-hmm. then come and, and give back to the school. So mm-hmm. can you tell the listeners a little bit about what that uh, what that early career was like and what high school was like? Oh, yeah. I mean. I was the reason why we left Connecticut because my mother hated living there, so she needed any type of excuse. And I told her one day that I wanted an agent, and she was like, you have no idea what you're talking about. And so she was like, you need to prove to me that you actually want this thing. And so I remember we drove into New York City. We probably drove into Greenwich Village, and I performed at a like teen youth comedy club stand-up talent show and one is there video <laughs> there is video it's on vhs and it's locked I, in the vault yeah, at the rsa household i swear if i could get that converted though i would like blast it on every <laughs> single social media channel being like this is the best thing i've ever done um but yeah i think my mother realized in that moment that she had kind of like a little force to be reckoned with um and she we were lucky. We um, had a lot of friends who were kind of in the music talent world, and they got me connected with a whole bunch of different agencies. And all of a sudden, it was just like, we have to move back to New York. Ariel has an agent. She's going on auditions all the time. And um, yeah, my parents were incredible because I was also at that time doing gymnastics at a very young age, from the age of like three to 18. So Every day, my parents would pick me up from school. They would take me to auditions, and then they would take me to gymnastics, where I would do gymnastics for four hours a day and then come home at 9 o'clock at night and start my homework. So it was um, it was a pretty intense decision on their end. Um, and then they had their full-time careers and businesses as well on top of that. Um, but the reason why we moved back to New York as well was my mom was like, there's this school that you can go to when you become a teenager called LaGuardia. And it just became this kind of like emblematic goal for me mm-hmm. um, of like, yeah, I'm going to do that. And um, LaGuardia was one of the best experiences of my life. I'm probably one of the few people to say like high school was just incredible. But it was a time in New York before kind of New York City just became like absolute crazy educational cluster cusses. And you could actually get into a school based on your talent, not based on your grades. And so I went to high school with kids from all over New York who were not necessarily, um, you know, super focused on mathematics or, um, you know, anything other than what they were talented at. And they were they were supported. It was incredible. Did you did you book jobs? Did you feel like you were being successful? How did you kind of move away from that trajectory, which is acting and going to LaGuardia? I made more money before the age of 18 than I probably will ever make in my future as a person in the restaurant industry. Um, yeah, I did a ton of commercials, a lot of voiceover, some film and uh, theater work. Um, yeah, it was... I don't know. It was pretty amazing to get to be amongst all of these 
really kind of awesome performers um, in New York at the time that I was doing it, which was like before, you know, all of these amazing Netflix shows and, you know, we have all these different kind of forms of media. Um, you would be on a commercial set for Dunkin' Donuts and it was probably like a $2 million commercial set, which like that kind of stuff doesn't happen anymore. Um, and you were like treated like a queen to walk out there and just like scream for a donut. Um, yeah, it was, it was great. And I went to college for theater. I went to University of Michigan and really quickly into that experience, I realized that it wasn't something that I was probably going to be proactive about for the rest of my life. I didn't really kind of connect with it. Um, so I transferred into a more of a producing, um, BA role where I kind of saw more of the back end of media, um, and, kind of felt like I was more of a problem solver rather than necessarily being the star. And so how do you end up going from Ann Arbor, Michigan to Chicago? Oh, um, well, most people, when they graduate from Ann Arbor, either go to like New York or LA or Chicago. And I had had a lot of friends who were from the Midwest. And so they had went to Chicago. Um, and, after I graduated, actually, I did come back to New York. And I had had a lot of experiences working in the food business because I graduated in 2009 when the economy just, like, didn't exist. And there were no jobs. <laughs> and I, Not the best time to be searching for no, a no, job. No, 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 yeah. especially out of, like, you know, a really competitive school. And I was lucky because I actually graduated with a job in New York at the Herbert Berghoff Studios, which is a theater company down on Bank Street. And, um, you know, I was trying to make some money and trying to figure out kind of where I belonged. And I was working as a grip and electric on film sets because like I had worked for my dad for so long. And I was like, you know, this is cool, but I don't, I don't know. I don't know if I want to be a producer, if I want to be a, you know, a camera person or if I even want to be in this business. So I just took a job being a bartender and I had never done this before. I lied through my teeth to get the job and I knew that I could do it. You know, I knew that I could perform and it was not a great bartending job. It was like working for a catering company. Um, but like within six months I was everyone's boss and at the same time, this catering company was um, making a lot of uh, foods from like frozen foods that they were getting from probably Cisco or some sort of really terrible uh, food company. And I was like, you know, we could really save money if we were buying fresh produce and we were making everything in house. And they were like, do you know how to cook? And I was like, of course I know how to cook, which I did not know how to cook either. So um, all of a sudden I was like <laughs> running this kitchen and I was like, I am too young. I have no clue what I'm doing. Um, I was working for Max McCallman, who was a master psalm uh, from Pichaline, who opened Artisanal. And I was working alongside him and was learning about wine and was learning about cheese. And I was just like, I need some experience. So Chicago felt like a really good place to go because Chicago is kind of like this explosive food town with a lot of young people at the helm of it. And I just felt like, I could get some opportunities there that I probably would have not necessarily been able to get in New York with no resume. And you moved to Chicago at a really great time in the 
in the moment of yeah. Chicago's explosion, which is 2011 when, uh, not that New York has ever lost its luster, but some of the shine of United States sort of culinary expertise and excellence shifts yeah. to, uh, to Chicago specifically, um, some of the focus that would have otherwise been on LA chefs and New York chefs ends up uh, at Grace and Alinea and other wonderful restaurants in Chicago. And you end up being part of that family, right? So yeah. how did you uh, end up at the the office? Well, um, <laughs> I think I was really lucky. And what I think is really incredible about that restaurant group is that they do see potential in people. Um, even if you don't really fit the criteria for what a traditional hire would be, um, I think they've put the right people in management positions to really identify potential talent. Um, and that is what happened for me. There was there was no job for me. And then all of a sudden there was a job for me. Um, they have a tiny little kind of underground bar underneath uh, Next and the aviary, which is called The Office. And it's like 16 seats and it basically services some of the most rare spirits, cool beer collaborations, incredible wines and champagnes, and then, of course, an incredible cocktail program. And they have one person that works the room, and then they have one bartender. And I remember just walking into that space and being like, oh, this is where I'm going to do something really fun. And all of a sudden, they were like, you're hired and you start tomorrow, you know? Um, In what role? As the kind of facilitator of this space. Um, it was a, like a serve, it was part service. It was part, you know, um, I, don't, I don't know how to explain. Did it feel a little bit like performing again? Oh, of course. It's a totally performative role. Um, I never really like understood or like, really can put my finger on um, what that role was because it involved you kind of like walking in the doors at six o'clock and not being yourself and being somebody for everybody and then also being able to kind of maintain the flow and the function of the space because you only had one person to rely on, which was that bartender. Um, so that made me able to kind of create my own service style and also have to know about every single product that we sold so that I was able to kind of steer people in a direction. If, you know, he had five cocktails on the board, how do I not add to that by, you know, selling somebody a spirit or starting them, you know, with a glass of wine or starting them with something that they were going to ex enjoy just as much, but not feel like they weren't getting the experience that they were coming for, um, which had a lot to do with like pairing and had to understanding like, um, you know, flavor profiles. And like, that is when I started to develop like how I communicated about spirits as a whole. Um, it was like my foundation for absolutely everything that I've done since. And how long did you spend there? I was there for a little over a year. Um, and when I was there, you know, you work these crazy hours. And on the sixth day or the seventh day, um, I would go buy a bottle of champagne. <laughs> and um, I knew nothing about champagne. But I was, like, really intrigued by it. It was kind of like my treat. 
and I just got super obsessed. And it was kind of like this beverage that I knew nothing about and wanted to know everything about and couldn't afford to know everything about on this trajectory. And there's a family-owned and operated champagne bar in Chicago called Pops. It's been there 35, 36 years now. And um, I was really lucky as I've been in my life to kind of get an in. They had not hired anybody for like four years up until that point. And most of the employees that work there had been there for like 15 years. Um, And they luckily hired me to come into this little team and experience champagne in the most like intensive way that I could have done. you know, without going and living there. And at a place like Pops, where it's just so focused on champagne, mm-hmm. how, if you can remember, how many bottles of champagne do they have on a list like that? And mm-hmm. also, how how do you learn so much so quickly? Mm-hmm. I mean, you're, people learn from Psalms, and obviously there are people there that were super experienced. Can you talk us through that process a little bit about how you started uh, visualizing the list and then also how they trained you to work there and make recommendations. Like how, how does champagne work right. from a recommendation standpoint? Right. Um, one thing that I've been blessed with is a relatively photogenic memory. It's why I was able to memorize lines as an actor. I can kind of like read something once and process it and hold on to it. Um, I think for anyone who's super stoked about anything, um, you have to do the work yourself. People will give you their information if you're lucky enough. Um, But if you want to really kind of learn and understand something, um, it's really about you taking the time to do it. So um, Pops, I think, was a little, like they were a little hesitant in the beginning to kind of just give me 35 years worth of champagne information. Um, It definitely like had a bit of like a, hazing to it because it was such a tight-knit group of people that have been working there for so long. Um, So I did my research. I spent a lot of time, you know, trying to find out as much as I could and educating myself and then also like tasting wine as much as possible um, until I kind of proved myself a little bit. And then Craig Cooper, who was the beverage director of Pops, you know, kind of like let the floodgates go and gave me his 15 years of being the beverage director's kind of just like manifesto. And then you're working alongside people that have been tasting these wines for the last however many years. So you get all of their experience. And then there was an amazing by the glass selection. So you're always tasting. And then you had guests who would come in and buy bottles of things that they would share with you. So you were really immersed in the wines. Um, I think my experience having worked, you know, so early, so like much previously in my uh, experience with Max about uh, pairing, I started understanding like a vocabulary um, that was unique and became my own. And then I kind of got to work on that more deeply um, at the office. And then by the time, you know, I kind of started working with Champagne, I felt really comfortable letting my own personality and my own communication style kind of influence how I would communicate with other people about champagne. And I always try to put myself in my customer's shoes, which is like, 
I don't want to feel like I don't know something. I don't want to feel like something that I'm indulging in is something that I can't comprehend. I want to be talked to like a human. (laughs) So um, that is how I have and will continue to talk to people about champagne, um, which is like really candid, really nostalgic. I use like a lot of flavor profiles that people can like process and comprehend, even if they've never tasted something. I rarely ever talk about like terroir unless somebody wants to talk about it. Um, I tell a lot of stories, um, you know, that has to do with like being an actor. I'm a big storyteller um, so that people feel connected to it. Um, And then you kind of already, before you've even tasted the wine, feel like you know something. Um, and, And it's easier to trust a person when you feel like you can connect to them. We're going to take a quick break here on Heritage Radio. And when we come back, we're going to start talking about New York and Ariel's spots here. Uh, Stick with us. We'll be right back after the break. This episode is brought to you by Castor and Pollux, maker of America's number one organic pet food, Organics. You put a lot of care and thought into what you eat. After all, you're a food radio listener. That thoughtfulness goes hand in paw with how you feed your pets. Purposeful pet food doesn't happen by accident. Castor and Pollux scours the earth to carefully select the best organic and responsibly sourced ingredients. New Pristine from Castor and Pollux is the only complete line of pet food made with ingredients that are responsibly raised, caught, or grown. Feed your dog or cat the new standard, like grass-fed beef, wild-caught fish, and vegetables grown without synthetic fertilizers or chemical pesticides. Pristine from Castor and Pollux. Purposeful pet food. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org pets. Welcome back to The Line. Today is Giving Tuesday. It would be a really great day to become a member of Heritage Radio. You can head on over to heritageradionetwork.org forward slash donate. You'll see a heart on our website as well. Uh, Wonderful day to become a member of the station and show your support. And uh, now back to the show. So Arielle Arce is joining us today. She is the owner of a champagne bar. And then right underneath it is another establishment called Tokyo Record Club. No, sorry, Tokyo Record Bar. Uh, She is a champagne expert. She got a lot of champagne experience in Chicago working at Uh, a Grant Ackett's establishment uh, connected to Next Restaurant. And then she also worked at Pops, which was a sort of a champagne mecca in the United States. And then you end up coming back to New York and you end up uh, doing two champagne-related jobs, Mm. Birds and Bubbles. Mm. And then also you end up at another place that is sort of a natural wine, champagne-related restaurant. Can you talk a little bit about those two experiences and how... Uh, they shaped and helped the project that you have launched about six months ago. Oh, sure. Um, 
Well, Birds and Bubbles was this really serendipitous project that happened um, where I had been back in New York for about six months. Um, I met this woman. Her name is Sarah Simmons, and she wanted to open a fried chicken and champagne restaurant. And I was your girl, you know? Um, We, you know, my family, my father's side of the family is from New Orleans, so I have kind of really deep Southern roots. Um, and she, I was not familiar with fried chicken, to be frank. Um, I didn't grow up on fried chicken. I truly don't have an interest in it. My favorite food is pizza and they're kind of different. Um, but she made me some fried chicken and hands down it was the best fried chicken I've ever had. And I was like, all right, let's do this. Let's get business together. And we opened this little place, um, just on the outskirts of Chinatown. Um, it was downstairs. It had like a back garden. And the idea was to kind of accessibilize champagne and do this kind of highbrow, lowbrow pairing, which actually is super traditional. High fat and acid are amazing complements to one another. So um, I was there for about a year and a half. Um, my father built the restaurant. You know, it was a really super personal project. Um, But I've always, you know, kind of, I've always put the wine first. I have not really always been um, super interested in opening restaurants myself, um, just because that's not my focus. And um, Birds and Bubbles was a restaurant first with a champagne component, which was great, but it just wasn't really allowing me to kind of explore the wine as much as I really kind of wanted to. And um, I really am very interested in kind of experiential dining and um, more con- like conceptual dining um, because champagne specifically has such a weird reputation of being celebratory and like only drank during holidays and New Year's and, you know, as an aperitif. Um, and I wanted to find ways to kind of take this product and put it alongside things that you would never expect to find it with. And um, after I left Birds and Bubbles, um, Robbie DeRossi, who owns Death & Co. and Maria Margo and a whole bunch of incredible niche cocktail bars on the Lurie side, um, of Manhattan had opened a little champagne bar called Riddling Widow. Um, and he was looking for somebody to come in and take it over because the guy that he had opened it with was leaving. So I partnered up with him on it and it was 16 seats. Again, I find myself in a basement. Um, I'm really great at being subterranean apparently. And, um, I kind of used Riddling Widow as this like special opportunity to take, champagne and partner it with music, with film, with television, with food, and create these events that we would do um, regularly, like once a week. Um, And one of the events that we would do was Tokyo Record Bar. Um, And it was done on Thursdays. A friend of mine who um, is a photojournalist who works for Roads and Kingdoms, would travel to Tokyo all the time. And he walked into Riddling Widow one day and was just like, this reminds me of these tiny little vinyl bars in Tokyo. Um, we should do something. So kind of on the spot, like I never say no. I was like, yes, let's do champagne omakase and like some snacks and you'll spin some vinyl and it'll be a party. And it was hands down, like one of our most most fun nights that we would do and our friends would come out. Um, 
Yeah. And so let's talk about that sort of experiential dining and how you transition from taking a space that's being in these sort of more traditional restaurant and creating Tokyo Record Bar as its own standalone entity, which mm-hmm. we're in a basement, mm-hmm. uh, and it is above air. So these are your own solo projects. And if you can talk a little bit about Tokyo Record Bar first, since we're already discussing it, how does that exist now in its full five, mm-hmm. six days a week mm-hmm. incarnation, mm-hmm. and then we'll kind of move on back to champagne a little bit. Sure. Um, Tokyo Record Bar developed because I had wanted to do something different beforehand in this space, um, but as we were kind of moving forward with the project, I kept thinking about how great those nights were and how much fun they were. And um, I started this kind of... Uh, I built, I, I built a model, right? You know, I, I have 16 seats. The business needs to support, uh, you know, rent and labor and all of the fundamentals of operating a restaurant. Um, and, you know, if I want to do, uh, make this much money, this is how many covers I need to do, and this is how many employees I need to have. And once I started building that model, I realized that Tokyo Record Bar could never really offer me, like, consistency, I could never be able to track it in a way where I was like, okay, we're going to do this much money a night. And not, not that you need to do that in a business, but when you're only 16 seats and you need to have a certain amount of employees to make the business run, um, you need to kind of know that consistency. So my original idea of it just being a bar and a place that people would come in and like listen to music and hang out started to evolve. Um, I needed people to be able to walk in and feel like they were getting a certain type of experience. And I needed to have a price that kind of reflected that and made them feel like they were getting a value. Um, and I wanted them to participate in this experience. Um, vinyl is a really fun, tricky culture. You know, when you have a DJ, a DJ generally doesn't take requests. Um, you go and you listen to a DJ's music. But if I was going to have a DJ six nights a week, that was going to be something that I was going to have to manage on top of just operating a bar, which is already a pretty big commitment. So um, I started thinking about, well, what would it look like if the guests started to participate in that experience and they chose the music? How could we create a place where it was not a passive dining experience? Um, They would probably need to have their food already thought about for them so that they're not like super focused on the food and they get to be focused on the music. Um, They could choose their drinks. Like, you know, we don't really know how people imbibe. So like maybe they're going to want to do sake, maybe they're going to want to beer, maybe they're going to want to have champagne. Um, So we'll leave that kind of to the side. And um, if they're going to choose the music, how are they going to do it? We need to create a selection for them. And Vinyl Jukebox was born. <laughs> um, we do two seatings a night at 6.30 and 8.30. 22 guests sit down together and do this experience where they choose the playlist together communally. Um, and it's a seven-course tasting izakaya. So it's not really an omakase per se. It's more like a lot of snacks and like fun fried things and like really tasty food. Um, it's 50 bucks and the guests choose their drinks and it's a two hour experience. So how do they get to choose the music specifically? The first thing that they get when they sit down is a vinyl list. They get a 
you know, 20 page list of music that we have in house. It's broken down by genre. Um, since we opened, our collection has tripled and we still haven't even been able to keep up with how much music that is to add. Um, but we're about to like really kind of more volumize our music um, and create it more like a wine list than it is now, which is just listed by genre so that people can get more information about the music that they're choosing. You know, the year that it was produced, where it was produced, um, artist, album, song title, etc. Um, and they get pencils and paper and they pick songs and they hand them in. And then in real time, the DJ takes all of those song selections, compiles them into a, a harmonious listening experience. Um, yeah, it's it's really intense. People really care about their music. It was the one thing that I like didn't factor into this entire equation. I was gonna, I was actually just gonna say that perhaps the only thing that people are more serious and territorial about than wine, yep. would be their coffee. their vinyl and then vinyl. And yeah, you're right. Coffee <laughs> tends to make people pretty psychotic as well. Um, so then, so downstairs is. A party downstairs is this cool kind of Japanese inspired uh, vinyl listening party. What's upstairs like at Air? Well, Airs is a really special place because it focuses on quality ingredients, and that like that number one quality ingredient is champagne. Um, and then it does things like cheese, charcuterie, raw bar, like oysters and caviar. Um, and like French fries, it is where downstairs is like a final Mecca, like upstairs is that for champagne. Um, and we do something that's special, which is we charge a one-time markup across the board on every single wine that we have in house, um, which is intended to force people into buying bottles because the deal is so great. Um, so that people actually get to hang out with their friends and have a bottle of champagne and create their own party. So upstairs is like more of, it's not as communal. It's more about like bringing friends together over a bottle of champagne. Um, that's not going to break the bank. And downstairs is more of like an integrated experience. You're six months in ish yes. about to, yes. to with these new projects. What is the biggest struggle that you're having or that you've had as a small business owner? And what do you think is sort of like the best moment that you've had yet since they've oh. opened? Um, my problems are probably very similar to everyone else's, which is staffing is hard. Um, there's so many restaurants and wine bars in New York City, and it's really hard to find like super qualified staff. And for me, qualified is not resume. Qualified is like, do you get it? Um, I always say like, be cool, which like to me is not like, be cool. <laughs> it's like, can you be cool? Like, can you? change yourself for who you need to be for our guests. Like, can you roll with what we're doing here? Um, are you into it? Do you buy in? You know, um, and that is really hard in New York, unfortunately, just because people are really driven to make their own careers happen. And a lot of times, um, you know, they want to bring their own style and their own experience to the table, which I really am supportive of. I love people having their own identities at our bars, but I would say staffing is the hardest. Um, 
And also being a small business owner is hard. You do a million things. There's not enough time in the day to get everything accomplished. And the only person you can blame for when those things aren't done is yourself. So that's also a really fun challenge. Um, the best thing that's happened, oh my God, like the day that that people walked into the bar was like the best thing that happened. Like. I've never done anything in my life where people said, yep, I agree. Like, I sign on to what you're doing. Like, I've been fighting an uphill battle working with a product that, like, people don't necessarily get or care about. Um, but inside, uh, in my heart, I'm just like, I really care about this thing and I'm really going to push it forward. And the fact that people come into Tokyo Record Bar, the fact that people come into airs and like give me their money and like participate in it is like the best thing ever. Um, yeah, I mean, that's that's probably not the answer you wanted, but it's it, like I'm so proud of my my team, the people that I get to work with. Like they do an amazing job every single day. I want to know about this team because you have uh, – an almost encyclopedic knowledge and a huge background in champagne. You're coming into your own project, really knowing what you want to talk about and knowing the vision, but you can't possibly have every single person on your staff know as much about champagne as you. And we were talking earlier, you've got over a hundred bottles of champagne on the list. How do you impart your wisdom to your staff since you can't necessarily touch every single customer every single time they order. Uh, just if, if there is a way to generally kind of sum up, how do you impart the wisdom of, of champagne to your staff so that they can pass that along to your customers? Mm -hmm. um, most of the people that I have hired are people that have worked in wine and have like a sincere passion for it. Um, specific at airs specifically. Um, and they came to the table with a little bit of knowledge. Um, as an aside, I, I work six days on the floor upstairs at airs, which is the six days that we're open unless I'm downstairs DJing because my DJ doesn't need to work six days a week. Um, so I do my best to touch every table. Um, that's a, it's a really hard question. I honestly think it just has to do with time. Um, we spend a lot of time going through the wine list and the selections and opening wines and tasting them. And we also run through a ton of different wines by the glass, which keeps us excited and it also keeps the, sta uh, the guests that come excited. But it's not like you can just dump an encyclopedia's worth of information on a person and expect them to be able to process it and care about it the way that I do, um, which is, again, why it's really hard to staff for this type of concept. Um, my team is super dedicated to the wines, and they care a lot about them, and they take it upon themselves to learn a lot about these wines as well, um, and then every time I pull something that people haven't tasted before, um, we kind of have a moment's breakdown where we're like, this is the information about the wine, this is as much that I know about it, um, this is why it's special, any questions, <laughs> you know. 
Um, but just to add, sorry, I'm sure I'm low on time. My team is really, really special because m- almost every single person that is working there has worked there from the moment that we opened our doors. Um, and most of them are people that I've known for a really long time, some of which I've known since like I'm a child. Um, so we have a lot of fun interpersonal dynamics that sometimes work and sometimes don't work. But I do think that I go to work with my friends and some of them are new friends and some of them are old friends and that makes them very hard to manage but it also means that I think that they have my back so it means that I want to invest in them as a small business owner who launched a very personal concept you started off at uh, at airs with a larger menu Mm. And at Tokyo Record Bar, the food has morphed over mm. time as well. So you're talking about not only two concepts which have very separate identities, which are very close to your heart, but also now you're talking about, honestly, you own and manage two full on eating and drinking experiences. Sure do. Can you talk a little bit about just briefly how it started and also as the boss, how how did it work that you altered both kind of on the fly as mm-hmm. you were as you were in your first couple months of being open yeah um you really have to tr- trust your gut like you can't compromise if you are going to do something that is a reflection of you and i don't mean that you need to be an artist and you have to be incredibly flexible to see what people are responding to and what they are not. Um, I, I always start with, do the numbers work? Can I run a model that works? And where are the holes? What is working and what isn't working? Um, like putting things down on paper will really show you quickly how your concept is evolving. Um, And I knew that because of our space, we have a very unique space where we are in this kind of like old townhouse in Greenwich Village and we have one kitchen that services both downstairs and upstairs. Um, And I was going to have a product that was very expensive, aka champagne upstairs. And I was going to have kind of something a little bit more experiential downstairs that wasn't going to be um, as high of costs that I needed to have a low labor model um, with you know, um, a nice balance between my cost of goods. Um, I'm really lucky. My rent is like not one of these horror stories in New York city. And I also didn't put a million dollars into building my restaurant. My father built them. Um, it cost me uh, about $300,000 in total from buying the business from the previous owner to the build out of both spaces for New York. That's an absolute real steal. Yeah. That's a real and I <laughs> unbelievable don't number. Think that you necessarily have to not do that in this city. You just have to think about how you can do it. Um, you know, right now there's a really traditional mold and it's, you know, your rent should be this much, you need to make this much revenue, your cost of goods needs to be here, depending on the model that you're building. Um, you know, your labor needs to hover around this number. And people unfortunately get stuck in these like unflexible models. And then when the thing that they want to do can't fit into it, they kind of try to like jam it in and it doesn't work. So for me, I had to think like out, I had to take that 
traditional model. And then I had to think outside of it of how I was going to be able to sell the products that I wanted to sell and give the experience I wanted to give while still making the numbers work. And, you know, when you are doing such a personal project like I've done, which I'm not necessarily saying is what everybody should do, um, you tend to say like, well, this is what really matters and this is like the things that are super important to me and I'm not going to bend on that. But this is when you have to be flexible and say like, okay, these people are really attaching themselves to this thing and this is what our product mix is showing we're selling the most of and this is what is the most important thing. This is my North Star that I want to achieve. How do I take all of that information and create essentially like an algorithm? <laughs> algorithmic model. Got it. Got it. Um, to achieve that. And you have to trust your gut that what you started with wanting to do was important enough that six months in or a year in or however long into the process, you're still trying to achieve that thing and you're trying to do it better every day. And if you don't have that, when you decide to open a business, you should definitely not open a business because it's not glamorous. It's a lot of work. You are going to get a lot of gray hair. You Wait a second. I thought you drink champagne and DJ six days a week. That I sounds do pretty nice. No, do that, though. That is also still part of my reality. It's just not glamorous. But then you got to do all the other shit of as course. well at the end of the day. Uh, what, what to you... Uh, as a business person who has has launched these concepts, if there was something that you could have spent some time with a mentor or taken an extra six months to do, what aspect of of the overall projects do you kind of wish that maybe you could like do that save by the bell pause thing and take some more time to focus on since you really are day to day just slammed with the day to day? To be frank, like where we are now came out of it all. Like I'm still building and fixing airs, right? If I had taken an extra month or two weeks even to like build it, I still wouldn't have built it the way it is now because what I had to open my doors. I built airs in one month and we built Tokyo Record Bar in four days days because we were open operating airs while we were building Tokyo Record Bar and the only day that we were closed was Monday and my father would come in and he would build the bar on Mondays and I needed to open so I did and I didn't open it exactly the way that I wanted to but two months into it I was like you know what this is how we can fix it to make it better because this is how people are connecting to the space and I wouldn't have known that had I spent those extra two weeks or month building it and spending more money to do it. I think more often than not, people want to nail it. And I think what's m the most important is to nail your concept, really clearly be able to define it and identify it in like one sentence and like see exactly what it is that you want to achieve rather than being like, the space was physically perfect from the moment we walked in and my inventory systems were like perfectly developed. And like, I also think you like should open with like less staff than you need. Like, I think that you should open with enough people to be able to achieve what you want to achieve and make the people that are part of the experience 
and your team feel super connected to it and feel like they have ownership in it. And then when you bring new people on, they are able to impart the kind of, you know, culture that you've created there rather than like over hiring and then having to let people go because it's not going the way that you want it to. Like Tokyo Record Buyer is doing two times better than I projected. We had to scale up for that. It's been harder to scale up for something that's doing well than it is to pull back on something that's not. That's not something that I was prepared for at all. And like I'm learning to deal with that. I think it happens the way it happens. Like I really don't think we could have done it differently. I'm going to close out with what I hope is going to be a a fun question, but it might be a really hard one for you, which is... We're going to talk about champagne, but we're going to try to zero in on a glass, a bottle of champagne that is something that either forced you to do this project that you hold on to Mm. or something that uh, you've drank recently that sort of took your breath away, brought you to tears. Is Is there a bottle or a glass that you can share? We could do an entire podcast on this. We, we don't have the full hour any, anymore. Um, no, but no. just, yeah, get, um, get people excited for what you're doing at Ayers. Well, oh God. Champagne is so hard because if I said a specific producer right now, the likelihood that people can go out and buy it and experience it is really small, although you could probably do it at my bar. But... Um, I was just in Champagne on this last trip, um, like three weeks ago. Um, And I visited with a producer who I have known for a really long time, but have never actually been to the winery. Um, It's producer Pierre Peters. Um, And his wines are pretty well known. He's a smaller producer in the grand scheme of um, big house versus small growers. Um, But he makes very like terroir specific champagne. It's from a little town called Le Menil. Um, And I've never really been super fascinated with Le Menil champagne because for me, it's not like my personal taste. I like something with a little more fruit. I like something with a little more body. There's a lot of minerality from where these wines come from. And I've tasted his wines on many occasions, but it was the first time that I had sat down with him and like tasted his full lineup and then we went into the back cellar and pulled some really old wines and tasted them as well too and it just reminds me that I know nothing like every time that I think I know something about champagne I taste something that reminds me that there's so much more that I don't know Um, and his wines that I had always kind of thought of as these like really kind of like mineral acidic kind of like slightly like currented soft wines like were just filled with like coffee and cocoa nib and like all of these rich kind of like savory flavor profiles and I was just so blown away at like again just how wrong I was about these really profound wines um so we do have Pierre Peter's wines at our bar, and I highly recommend people coming to drink them because they're phenomenal. And his son, um, he does a project with his son where his son takes really old kind of antique um, paintings and um, draws them in an anime style on the bottle label um, so it kind of ties together Tokyo Record Bar and Airs, which like I just love 
I just love that. Um, but for champagne, I think that the thing that people still don't know is that there is affordable champagne out there. Um, for the amount of money that you buy on a nice bottle of white or red wine, like you can get an exceptional bottle of champagne or sparkling wine from around the world. Um, the price point of like 30 to $40 is out there. Like you can drink that with a friend. Um, you will get fun and tipsy and buzzed and it will be excellent quality and it doesn't have to break the bank. Um, does that help? Of course. Okay. Thank you so much for joining us here today on the line. You can find Ariel's vision of her establishments on McDougal Street. There's Ayers Champagne Parlor and then downstairs there's Tokyo Record Bar. What's the exact address where they can find you? 127 McDougal. All entrances go through Ayers. Cool. So go check out both places when you've got some time and go drink some champagne. Thanks for joining us today on the line on Heritage Radio. We'll see you every Tuesday for a new episode at 11 a.m. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.